0: the congregation of the Lord, as we begin our message, will you turn with me in the back of your Psalters to page 62 as we consider Lord's Day 30. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we, by the Holy Ghost, are engrafted into Christ, who, according to his human nature, is now not on earth, but in heaven, at the right hand of God his Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests, and further that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them. So that the mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ, and an accursed idolatry. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death, and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy, but hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves." Are they also to be admitted to the supper who by confession in life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles, to exclude such persons for the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. Well, by some reckonings, as this is the Sunday closest to October 31st, it is Reformation Sunday. At Lord's Day, where some of us reflect upon the great work that the Lord did in the 16th and 17th centuries to recover the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the pure worship of God from the terrible apostasy of Roman Catholicism. And often we reflect on different aspects of the Reformation. We think of Martin Luther standing for justification by faith alone. But also, surely, we think of that man by the name of John Calvin, that man who labored in Geneva for the purity of the Lord's worship. It's not so easy for John Calvin, you see, children, because there were many people who opposed bringing the worship of God into alignment with the Word of God, particularly on this point of the Lord's Supper. You see, John Calvin was persuaded on the basis of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that it is a terrible sin to allow ungodly and unconverted persons, notorious sinners, to come to the Lord's Supper. And so he worked in his consistory, the consistory of Geneva, and he also got approval from the local city council to begin fencing the Lord's table, that is, to exclude notorious sinners from the sacred ordinance. And a group of families, they were very opposed to the consistory's decision on this, They were accustomed to living as they pleased and still frequenting the Lord's Supper. And so they mounted an opposition to John Calvin's policy on this. And on one particular Lord's Day, on September 3rd, 1553, they came into St. Pierre's Cathedral, where John Calvin was preaching. And according to some... Accounts they swaggered in with their hands on their swords. With hands outstretched. Ready to receive the Lord's Supper. Well, Calvin, he boldly preached from the word of God. And when the sermon was concluded, he spoke very directly to what he called these despisers of sacred ministries. According to one history book book. This is what he said. These hands you may crush. These arms you may lop off. My life you may take. My blood is yours. You may shed it. But you shall never force me to give holy things to the profane and dishonor the table of my God. You would imagine that perhaps this might be John Calvin's last sermon. But his words came with such unction of the Holy Spirit One by one, these despisers of the table of the Lord slunk off, and the service continued. Even more remarkably, despite the city council's decision, he continued in his ministry, a marvelous preservation of God and his church. So I was reflecting on this and reflecting upon the clear teaching of our catechism, I'm reminded that this is also a doctrine that is assaulted in different ways today. Listen to what the author of our catechism wrote in his commentary on the subject. Those who examine themselves and who are possessed of true faith and repentance are worthy guests at the Lord's table. Those who have not this testimony within themselves ought not to approach the Lord's table, lest they eat and drink judgment to themselves, nor should they defer that repentance which is necessary in order that they may come and also bring upon themselves hardness of heart and everlasting punishment. We see here the clear teaching on this matter. And there is a sacred trust on the part of every gospel church to so obey this ordinance of the Lord. I speak to those who are either on the consistory or may one day be on the consistory in the future. This is something you do well to bear in mind as well. This chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians is one that everyone who would be entrusted with the Lord's Supper and the guarding of it in a position of leadership should take well in mind. And so we will take a number of Lord's Days to examine it. And we will begin by considering the overall context in which this chapter comes. You see, this book of 1 Corinthians is a book of controversies, which the Apostle Paul took up with a very troubled church. And while it was certainly a great burden upon that minister to address so many things in one letter, Certainly, the Church of Jesus Christ continues to yield profit from reflecting upon the principles that are revealed in this book. And and here, the issue before us is the abuse of the Lord's Supper. The abuse of the Lord's Supper. With the Lord's help, we will consider three things from this aspect of this chapter. First, we will see the danger second, the example, and third, the lesson. Abuse of the Lord's Supper, the danger, the example, and the lesson. Well, would you look with me at uh, this chapter, but let us begin reading at verse 27. For I speak to you of a terrible danger, which this chapter warns us against on this matter. Verse 27, now ye are the body of Christ's... Sorry, wrong chapter. Chapter 11 and verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread... And drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Now, the context here is a very sobering one. This was a congregation in which, in the recent past, there were confessing Christians who had died. Died. They had passed away into the next world and given up the ghost, as the scripture language would say. It is designated here in verse 30 that many sleep. Listen to what John Gill says about that. That is, die a corporeal death, which is often in Scripture signified by sleep and frequently used of the saints of their death. It may intend and include some of them here. For though the Lord might resent so far as their unworthy conduct and behavior at his table, so to remove them out of this world by death, yet their souls may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So, people had died, and it says others were sick, others perhaps even at the point of death. This, in addition to all the other problems at Corinth, were confronting this troubled church. And here the apostle says, I will tell you why it is that some have died. It is because of the abuse of the Lord's Supper. This table of the Lord, this bread and wine, appointed by Christ himself as a sign and seal of his death and salvation, this has incurred a terrible judgment, that these have died. Now, right away we understand that the English translation here in verse 29, in our translation, he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. is probably more accurately rendered judgment. Judgment. And certainly if Paul was saying that everyone who uses the Lord's Supper improperly will surely be damned, he wouldn't have used the language of sleep. Because sleep is more appropriately fitting for one who dies in the Lord, one who dies in faith. But still, there is a terrible thing that has transpired. People have died under the Lord's displeasure for wrongly using the Lord's Supper. Now, I think that even that, if we would simply stop there, we would recognize that this is a bold affront to many modern attitudes of worship in our day. It's terrible to think How many churches in which participating in the supper of the Lord is a very casual thing? It's the sort of thing that is done lightly, without much thought, without any preparation, often in a manner that is very irreverent and not at all in conformity to the word of God. And certainly many would say, how is it that anyone could be bothered to worry, to worry about how the Lord's Supper is administered and received. And yet God would say that this is so important, I'm willing to kill those who would so transgress this commandment. I'm reminded that in the not-so-distant past, many churches even ceased celebrating the Lord's Supper for an entire year in order for safety concerns. And yet, one of the safety concerns we ought to recognize, that if we displease the Lord by dishonoring this ordinance, then his wrath could break out and people could perish. Such is the teaching of our text. Is it such a wonder to you? Perhaps you say, I can't imagine that God would actually kill people for desecrating his ordinance. Well, remember, don't we? This is the very same God who slew the firstborn of Egypt. Didn't we read about that in Exodus chapter 12, considering the Passover? Chapter 12, verse 12 For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where we are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. There may be one here who says, Well, I don't think that's very nice. I don't think it's very nice that we would worship a God who would actually kill the firstborn of Egypt. I tell you, do not try to be nicer than God. If you would prefer God who is nicer than the God who executed his righteous judgment upon the wicked nation of Egypt, then we worship an idol and not the true and living God. I could also say this, we would prefer to worship a God who does not care how we administer or receive the Lord's Supper. If we would seek to worship a God who does not consider it a big deal to abuse the Lord's Supper, we worship an idol and not the true God of the scriptures. He is a righteous judge, this God whom we worship. Well, certainly we could think of the Passover meal, but think of also of that great covenant meal that we read about last week on Mount Sinai, how it was that Moses led Aaron and the priests and the elders up the side of Mount Sinai, and there in the presence of the Son of God himself, they had that covenant meal, and they ate and drank in the presence of God. Well, even in that meal where... The Lord Jesus explicitly refers to when he says this is the blood of the covenant. We know also there, there was a solemn warning about desecrating even that covenant meal. Exodus nineteen and verse seventeen and Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount, and Mount Sinai was all together on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And then the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder. Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount. And Moses went up, and the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And let the priests also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. Those were the things that the Lord required, not that just anyone could approach unto the meal. Those whom the Lord excluded were to stay away, or else they would perish. Even those that the Lord invited, the priests, were to sanctify themselves, and were they not to sanctify themselves In the way the Lord required, well, then wrath and judgment would break upon them as well. Here is a holy God. He fences his table on Mount Sinai. And we saw, didn't we, how that that meal was recapitulated in the table of the showbread in the temple worship throughout the Old Covenant. And we saw how in the Lord Jesus' own words, he brings that forward in, in its meaning in the Lord's Supper as well. So it is that fencing the table has a long history and a long principle, and it's one that God jar- guards very jealously. You know, it's hard to think about these sorts of passages that speak about God's wrath upon those who desecrate his ordinances, and not think about that passage from Leviticus chapter 10. Those same two men who partook of that covenant meal on the, on the side of Mount Sinai, they met a terrible end in Leviticus chapter 10, chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Nahab and Abihu, the two priests who were sons to the high priest Aaron, Listen to what we read, and Nahab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is. Is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified, and them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified? And Aaron held his peace. So, what is the issue there? Well, there was a sacrifice which these two men deemed to offer, not even a sacrifice that the Lord forbade, simply a sacrifice that he did not command. They brought strange fire, a fire which the Lord had not commanded. And so it was that they were burned alive. And even their own father had to hold his peace. So jealously does God guard his worship. So offensive is it to God where his worship is corrupted either through addition, subtraction, or defect. His worship must be held in purity and according to his appointed word. Listen to what Matthew Henry writes about uh, 1 Corinthians 11, this point of the sin of abusing the Lord's Supper. Matthew Henry writes, "...they provoke God and are likely to bring down punishment on themselves." No doubt, but they incur great guilt and so render themselves liable to damnation, to spiritual judgments and eternal misery. Every sin is in its own nature damning. And therefore, surely so heinous a sin as profaning such a holy ordinance is so. And it is profaning in the grossest sense by such irreverence and rudeness as the Corinthians were guilty of. So surely, if this has done nothing else but to wake you up and to realize how seriously this matter of abuse of the Lord's Supper is, then I hope I will not have wasted my words. Let us come to the second matter, the example. Yes, we see what a serious thing it is to abuse the table of the Lord, the Holy Supper. But when here we see some of the specific ways in which this was done in this context. And while we will have um, at least one more sermon expounding positively what we learn from our duty here, I think that we will do well to take some time to reflect on the ways in which this congregation and the Christians in it abused the Lord's Supper. So let us uh, read here in 1 Corinthians 11, and particularly verse 17, and we will see what the context here is. Now in this I declare unto you, I praise you not that ye come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be manifest among you. When ye come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in eating every one taketh before another his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Well, for some differences as to what is done in worship may seem to be a very light thing, a light matter. Not something certainly to raise a fuss about, but here the apostle uses some of the strongest language that I know of in his letters. Even take that verse that we just read. Despise ye the church of God that holy congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very people of God, all are sinned against, where the Lord's Supper is abused. Consider what's said in verse 17. "Ye come together not for the better, but for the worse, for the worse. Some might say anything worth doing, is worth doing well. And certainly where we would come to the worship of God, he requires our best, our best. And as we would reflect even this morning about how the preaching of the word can bring judgment upon those who do not improve their spiritual opportunities to grow in grace, we would say much the same of those who abuse the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It is not for their better if they use it unworthily. No, it is to their spiritual detriment, to their hardening, to their spiritual decline. Notice how it says in verse 20. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It's really not the Lord's Supper at all. It has become so profaned, so abused, so desecrated, there is nothing left of the true ordinance of our Lord Jesus Christ. How serious is this? How serious? The Lord's Supper, a precious love gift given to us from the King of Heaven to be cherished, to be guarded, to be protected, to be administered, to be received according to the Lord's appointment. This is something that is most grievous unto God, something that is most offensive unto him when it is not held in honor. But How is it in particular that it was... Abuse. what are some of the things we may learn? Well, one thing that is assumed here, not so much stated and condemned as assumed, is that there's an overall context of heresy in this particular church. You notice how that's said in verse 19, for there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Well, there is that good thing at least. There was a terrible problem in this church. Heresies were being taught. And at least those who were approved of God were being made manifest. Because they were opposing the heresies. They were standing up against them. Seeking the purity of the Lord's church. There was a dividing of the wheat and the tares. And the true from the false professors. But certainly in the context of a terrible injury to the honor of the Lord. For, he says, that heresies were being taught. Dr. Gill writes, these, the apostle says, must be because God has decreed that they must. Whose counsel is immutable and his purpose unalterable. And since his, and since his purpose unalterable and since his, this always was the case... And there were false prophets under the former dispensation. It must be expected that false teachers will arise in the churches now, bringing in damnable heresies. So it is that the Satan does not rest. And the sinfulness of the human heart is still as weak and vulnerable to such things now as in past times. In this case... If you read all of 1 Corinthians, you know there were many uh, problems besetting this church. Certainly in chapter 15, it speaks of the denial of a literal resurrection at the end of history, which, apart from which our faith is vain. And we can multiply the examples, but you understand the point. The notorious heretics who indeed deny essential parts of the gospel, however sincere they may seem, have no place whatsoever at the table of the Lord. And indeed, all others who would contradict our Christian profession through gross sins are also to be forbidden. Notice how strongly the Catechism puts this. Are they also to be admitted to the supper who by confession in life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No. No. For by this, the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Very serious matter here. Her also expand upon this in his commentary on the, his catechism. Quote, the church ought to admit to the Lord's Supper all who profess to receive the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith and who have a purpose to live in conformity thereto but should exclude all those who are unwilling to abandon their errors, blasphemies, or sins when they are properly admonished by the church and convicted of these errors and sins. Remember, there was uh, one couple that came to this church and were fleeing a church that actually worshipped images. It was an idolatrous church false church not a christian church at all and we'd speak it spoken to them about some of our doctrines and we were willing to speak to them they were somewhat receptive but they they rubbed away from from us on this point they they were offended and they said how is it that we can't immediately come to the lord's supper and so we had to tell them, no, and understand that unless we see that there is a conformity with the will of Christ in a true gospel church, then there cannot be admittance to the Lord's Supper. And so it was that while well, they did not return to an idolatrous church, they went to an evangelical church that has a laxer standard of fencing the table. We wish them no ill and we wish them no disrespect, but we would say this much more that we would offend people by our faithfulness than that we would offend God by our unfaithfulness. We say that in the first place, that in this case we can learn much from the fact that there was heresy among them. But also there was the sin of schism, schism, or If you're not familiar with that word, it simply means sinful division among Christians, dividing for sinful reasons among the body of Christ. Notice um, that it speaks about that particularly here in verse 18. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partially believe it divisions, schism. And if you read elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, you know that this was a persistent problem among the church at Corinth. They were dividing into factions, into parties. Rather than seeing them as one family in the Lord Jesus Christ, they were saying, well, I'm part of this group, I'm part of that group, and we each advocate for our own perspective and interests. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11 speaks of this. For it hath been declared unto me... Of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there be contentions among you. Now, this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? Schism. Divisions within the body of Christ. This particularly was the sin that was confronting the Apostle Paul. You had people who were coming to the Lord's Supper, never having repented of the sin of schism, sinful division. Listen to what Matthew Henry writes here. There may be schism where there is no separation. Of communion. It may be surprising to you, but listen to his explanation. Persons may come together in the same church and sit down at the same table of the Lord and yet be schismatics. Uncharitableness, alienation of affection, especially if it grows up to discord and feuds and contentions, constitute schism. Christians may separate from each other's communion and yet be charitable one towards another. Yet they may continue in the same communion and be uncharitable. The latter is schism rather than the former. So it is, you understand what Matthew Henry is saying. It is not schism if one believer exercising his Christian liberty were to transfer his membership from one gospel church to another gospel church. That is not schism. We're done in brotherly love. Such things are indeed within the bounds of Christian liberty. and may indeed be what is required for Christian charity. But he says that there can be a schism, a division of a sinful nature where people are still part of the same church. And though they may worship together, they may even tend the Lord's Supper together, Yet they harbor a lack of love one towards another, which is not befitting a gospel confession. I hope we've seen through our series through First Peter, speaking about brotherly love in and, and some detail this year. That your Christianity is not realized, sitting away by yourself somewhere, thinking about how wonderful you are as a Christian. It's borne out by how you treat your brother's And sisters in the Lord The sincerity of your confession Is borne out in your practice Do you love others when it is hard When it is difficult When it requires forbearance And patience And forgiveness And the exercise of brotherly love It seems There's something in particular In particular about the Lord's Supper Which is supposed to bring Some of these things to the surface Think about it the prelude or one of the preludes to the lord's supper was the passover meal and there there was a liberty you see to celebrate this into in every individual household indeed that was the practice by household you would partake of the passover lamb and the passover bread and so forth and it's Eventually, this was centralized in Jerusalem, but it was still divided into all these households. Well, now we read the emphasis in 1 Corinthians 11 that ye come together into one place, it says again and again. That one congregation or gathering of believers, that is where we partake of this spiritual ordinance. And it is to be an expression of unity, not division. It is to bring to the surface those things in our hearts which must be confessed or repented of before we would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper individually. Well, this we see not only heresy, but schism, and in the third place, disorder. Disorder. And we see that drawn out in the latter part of the verses I just read. Verse 21, for in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them which have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? I praise you not. What is the problem here? Well, there is not an observance of due order. Perhaps because the elders of this church were not enforcing order, or perhaps they were seeking to do so, but there was not a submission unto their instructions. But whatever the case may be, rather than a common cup, a common table, a common bread in a common location, once it came to that part of the Lord's Supper for Uh, having the bread and wine, the different factions, the different groups, well, they would sometimes gather together in the congregation and they would eat and drink their fill according to what they had brought. And so perhaps not surprisingly, you have other abuses. You have the rich providing only for themselves, not giving to the poor. You have people drinking so much that they become drunk. It's, It's really a disgusting spectacle. Paul hears of this. And you can see how he's almost restraining himself. He asks the question, Shall I, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Here's a loving pastor playing the part of a loving father. He's asking the question, Is this befitting of the Lord's Supper? Can I praise you for this? I praise you not. He would love to praise them. He would love to say, yes, things are well. Yes, we are observing the Lord's Supper in the right way. But no, there's disorder, offensive to God. Some have died. Judgment has come upon the household of God. Why this also disorder? Matthew Henry writes, this was profaning a sacred institution and corrupting a divine ordinance to the last degree was appointed to feed. The soul was employed to feed their lusts and passions. What should have been a bond of mutual amity and affection was made an instrument of discord and disunion. The poor were deprived of the food prepared for them, and the rich turned a feast of charity into a debauch. This was scandalous irregularity. What a haunting phrase there. What should have been a bond of mutual affection became an instrument of discord. Terrible to contemplate. Even the most wonderful of blessings and gifts from the Lord Jesus Christ can be abused by sin when they are not put to the right service and the right obedience. They can even exacerbate tensions and discord. Here we See it laid forth. And it is held forth, brothers and sisters, not merely that we would consider them in the abstract, not merely to say, oh, what a terrible church Corinth was. We are so better. Are we better? Can we not search our own hearts and see many lessons that we ourselves should bring to bear? Let us consider that in the third place, the lesson. What is it that I would have us as a church, by God's grace, to learn here? First, a lesson about unity, unity. Verse 33, wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home. That ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order When I come. Tarry one for another. Wait for one another. Now it's important to understand the context here. What is he saying? Is he saying that if there's any member of the church who has not come to this particular gathering of the Lord's Supper, we cannot have the Lord's Supper? He's not saying that. He's speaking in a specific context. If you want to have your banquet, you stay that at home. If you're in the congregation of the Lord... In the worship service, don't start to grab the, the bread and the wine until the proper time when everyone can have some and they can demonstrate their common unity. That's the context. Within the worship service, those who are gathered together should do so in an orderly fashion. This is what it means when it says "terry." one for another. Dr. Gill agrees with his interpretation. He says the apostle's view is to promote unity, Christian respect, and brotherly love in the ordinance that they would sit down and join together according to the rule of Christ, without respect to persons or going into parties, factions, and divisions. So those who would use this text to say that we ought not to celebrate the Lord's Supper If, for example, someone says, I cannot or will not partake of the Lord's Supper, that is not a right use of this verse. There is no such verse. The right to administer the Lord's Supper is entrusted to the Church of Jesus Christ, to the elders, and to the minister of the consistory. And where there is a due observance of the Lord's Supper, according to Christ's appointment and the wisdom of the elders, there is a full right of every confessing believer to partake of the Lord's supper. So it is that there is no right for anyone to hold a church hostage so they not partake. No. It is for the Lord and for his glory and the church has a responsibility to administer it in an orderly fashion. The spiritual lesson is that each one of us has a responsibility in how we partake to ensure that we do not break the unity or the bond of affection in the covenant congregation. That's the lesson from Terry, one for another. Do not do anything that would offend another through an inappropriate action. That's the lesson. We jealously guard the unity of the congregation, and we do nothing to disrupt the due observance of the Lord's Supper which will always take place in a gospel church, the regular observance of the Lord's Supper for all those who have the liberty and the desire to partake. First lesson, unity. Second, a word about caution, caution. And we see this in verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. It's right after he talks about how some people have died because of the Lord's Supper. And here he has some good pastoral guidance. A terrible judgment has fallen upon the congregation. Some are sick, some have died. What does he say? Well, there is an opportunity to judge ourselves, to search our own hearts, and to pronounce a judgment on our sin. Where? God's displeasure would be manifested to our conscience and we would understand whether by providence or by his word that we have offended him in any part of our life. Then the right thing to do, whether or not it's preparation time for the Lord's Supper, is to get on our knees and confess that to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also important if we've sinned against another to confess that to the one we've sinned against and ask their forgiveness. This is what Christians do. We follow Christ in his loving example, freely forgiving one another and freely confessing our sins, not hiding it, not covering it up, but acting as the Bible tells us we have to do. And the caution caution here is that failing to heed that will lead to turning the Lord's Supper into its opposite. Profaning the Lord's Supper will bring that judgment upon ourselves, but only if we don't repent, only if we don't confess our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus and his forgiveness. Let it not be unto wrath. Christian, but unto correction where the Lord chastens you for your sins. Cause it to humble yourself under his mighty hand that you may profit and learn a lesson. Third, we see there's a lesson about grace here. Grace. Verse 32. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. There is not condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We shouldn't think from those words, drinking, judgment, or damnation to yourselves, that if you've sinned against the Lord's Supper, that there is no hope for you, not at all. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin, even that sin against his very ordinances. While indeed each one of us Surely deserve to be dropping dead for all the ways in which we have not used the Lord's Supper rightly in our Christian lives. Yet the Lord bears with us and yet chastens us and says, while it is yet the day of grace, there is mercy also for you. Matthew Henry writes, fearful believers should not be discouraged from attending this holy ordinance by the sound of these words, as if they bound upon themselves the sentence of damnation by coming to the table of the Lord unprepared, thus sin as well as all others leaves room for forgiveness unto repentance, and the whole upon repentance, and the Holy Spirit never indebted, intended this passage of scripture to deter serious Christians from their duty, though the devil has often made this advantage of it and robbed good Christians of their choicest comforts. That is what the Lord's Supper is about. Honouring the Lord, but receiving the comfort of the Lord as his children. Praise God for the clarity of his word. May we lay this up in our hearts, and each one of us see to our duty. By God's grace, amen.